Um, I truly do hope, I hope that we're enjoying this series of walking through this look at Abram's life. Because quite honestly for me, I'm enjoying it because I find myself easily relating to every person in this series. All the players in the story are easily relatable. They're just so, so human, right? And last week as we finished, as we came out of this amazing experience where we watched God promise to keep his promises to Abram, cut the covenant himself, and he doesn't even need Abram to see it come to reality. He's going to keep this promise himself. He just needs Abram's availability. It's like this mountaintop experience, this real high point where in a vision he sees God go, okay, I'm not a liar. How many of you have had those moments with God that were just profound, right, that touched you and changed you? A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to get away for um, extended vacation, and that vacation started at a time where I was away by myself for a week, and it was it was uh, a needed time. I had been really burning it at both ends, and as I, I went away to a cabin by myself in the woods, uh, I found the Lord with myself and just a few books and the Bible. I found the Lord leading me and encountering me in ways that I had never experienced before, and my life was forever changed. In fact, <laughs> in fact, it was so changed that I didn't want to I didn't want to forget it. I had this really incredible time with the Lord. And I remember praying, God, I don't want the second half of my ministry to look like the first half of my ministry. I just want it to be entirely different. And so two years ago, I went away on that trip and I had a full head of like black hair, right? And you know, remember when God met with Moses at the burning bush? He said, hey, I want you to remove your shoes because the ground on which you stand is holy. Well, I had kind of one of those experiences where I wanted to remember it forever. I wanted to have an Ebenezer. I wanted to take something away from it and, and to never, never forget. And so I found myself and I called my wife and said, hey, I think, I think God's asking me to remove my hair. Kind of like my shoes, but like the other end. And so, um, so like, I'm going to shave my head. And she was like, What? And so, so I was like, yeah, I, I think I'm just going to leave it here, and I've been shaving my head ever since. And I came out of that experience, I came out of that time, and I met my family, and we, uh, we went to worship at a church where, where like, we, we were on vacation, so we got to go in and just be a part and take it in, and it was, it was amazing, it was great. I was, I was coming out of this really spiritually high time, and I went to church, and so I could not wait to get to worship, and I sat there, and I was kind of near the back, because I don't get to do that all the time. I'm kind of more of a back row person, anyone? All right, okay. So you know me. All right, so I was kind of in the back, and I'm like just taking it in, and this lady comes over to me, and she um, says, I just, I got to tell you, like, God is telling me to tell you something like God is with you he's all over you You can tell when people have been with Jesus and I just I need to tell you this he's so burdened me to give you this this word and I said okay you know I'm coming out of like such a really rich time like this is awesome you know this is great God please speak I came to meet with you tell me she goes I need to tell you you are about to face the most difficult period in your life and I went come again I went, well, what? And she goes, oh, I mean, like, it's not like God has just burdened me and he's your, like, it's not like it's going to be hard. There's hard and there's what you're about to face. And I went, so you're like on the greeting ministry, right? Like, are you like the resident encourager here? I said, how about we just rewind this whole situation? Like, you know, you go back to where you were. I'll be here. And when I see you coming, I'll punch you in the face. You know, I was like, and, and the thing that was ironic about the entire experience was she was right. 
we came out of this amazing experience, and within a couple months, I went to one of the darkest places I'd ever been, physically, spiritually, emotionally, to the point where I was led to a place where I had encountered God just a couple months before, and now I'm sitting on my own living room couch questioning if God even exists. It was so bleak. And I got to tell you, like, like, I think that's kind of the transition we're about to see from Genesis 15 last week into Genesis 16 this week. And I, I don't say that to discourage you. I just want you to know, like, life and growth is a lot like, like this. You know, how many of you have ever come back from a camp experience or a mountaintop experience with the Lord and you find yourself within just a couple of weeks kind of back in the routine and back around the same players, same environment, and it starts to wear off a bit? Or you face something really difficult. I, students, I got to tell you, you guys are just coming back from camp. And when you guys took off for camp, trust me, we knew it. This place just felt so different without you here and your energy and your desire and your hunger. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that you're leading us as a church. And when you are absent, we feel it. So I want you to know we love you. We're grateful for you here. But I also want you to know you're going to need each other. As you're coming two weeks back from camp, there's this tendency that adults, I want you to raise your hand if you've ever experienced the, the wane from camp. You had that mountaintop experience, hands high so they can see it. Had that time with the Lord and then you get back in the routine and, and it just doesn't feel quite like it did. As, it, not as intimate as it was at camp. So here's the thing, you have a community and you'll need each other. You get to walk with each other now. And this is a great, great thing. And, and hopefully no one's going to come up to you and be like, look, Life's about to suck in the next few minutes, okay? Hopefully no one does that to you. As we transition from 15 to 16, I want to go ahead and tell you where we're going to be. Abram has come out of an experience where he has seen God show him a promise that he will keep, but, but in 16, it's Ishmael, okay? It's Ishmael. There's, there's going to be a time where reality just hits so hard as he's coming off the mountain, and they're trying to interpret and understand God's promise now. And there are other players who are getting involved. It's not just Abram now. It's Abram and Sarai and Abram and Hagar. And how many of you ever just struggle sometimes understanding what God wants? How many of you ever struggle to understand and interpret God's promises? Yeah. How many of us ever struggle to understand God's timing in things? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's this powerful thing that is going to happen in this passage. And really, in the first six verses, we see something kind of revealed. And I just want you to know, like, if you're here today and you're like, I've been, I've been dealing with some things, that's great. Man, you're going to see how dramatically human, human we all are in light of God. Is it okay to let God's presence just kind of settle in and open our hearts and minds and, and, our, and our thoughts to Him in such a way that we say, God, please teach us, teach us today that... You are God and we are not. And you are God and, and though we're human and we struggle and we have our highs and we have our lows, you are never not going to keep your promises to us and you're never not going to be with us even in, when we're in our darkest point. Amen? So in Genesis 16 it says this, Abram's wife Sarai had not born any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed. Not that I expect him to not agree. 
Anyone know a guy who wouldn't agree to this? Wait, this is your idea? Here it is. Just a joke. <laughs> so Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and she gave her to her husband. Abram is a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible with her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Verse 6. Abram replied to Sarai, I hear your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. And Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of the wilderness in the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be so many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she looked at the Lord who spoke to her and said, You are El Roi. And she said, In this place I have, act, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Bir Lohai Roi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named him, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, I want to show you uh, a, something that kind of shows up here in the first six verses to pattern. And life's all about patterns, right? Like the ups and downs. So here it is. In the first one, I'm just going to bring it up on the screen. It says that Sarah proposes. Abram's wife, Sarah, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Sarah says to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Here's the thing. I know that we have a tendency to hit Sarah with this one, and we say that she is sinning against against God or that she has... uh, Intervene, And we're going to talk about that because she is. But the reality is, in this day, um, the crown jewel of a woman was the ability to bear children. In fact, if a woman couldn't bear children, she would become a midwife and help other women bring children into the world. But Sarah, being um, in a third world country, elitist, she was not playing that role. But yet she was, she was older and possibly past the age of menopause. And she was already barren. We knew this. And, and she was beautiful. We saw that Pharaoh took her as her own. So she's a different person. Her countenance is so beautiful. She stands out amongst other women. And so her option was not necessarily to be a midwife, but her option was to create and provide a surrogate. Maybe I can build a family through her. This was common practice in the day. In fact, uh, Walt, he remembers it. It's not that this was just entirely out of the question. It was that they had been out of the, their land of Ur for 10 years now, left Haran, and, and now they've been in this land where Sarai, remember, I want to point this out, Sarai has never had an encounter with God. This God that Abram is talking to, Sarai has just been submitted and submissive to follow this entire time. And so 
as she is, <clears throat> you know, followed her husband from the land where she was very comfortable. They had indoor plumbing in Ur and followed her father-in-law to Haran. And then from Haran followed her husband who's had an encounter with a God that she herself has never talked to and led to a, a place that is barren. And, and then promised by that God that this place would be their inheritance and it would be for their descendants. And it's going to be a rich land, even though it's right now barren and overpopulated. And that from your barren womb, we're going to bring a, a descendant so loud, an issue so long that it won't be able to be counted. And then when Abram kind of sees all this and he's questions in himself, he leads his wife to Egypt and he lies on her and she's taken as someone else's wife. And then she inherits Hagar from that process and is sent back to the land. And so for 10 years, she's been in the land and her, we don't know how much time has passed between Genesis 15 and 16, but we know that he has just come down off this mountaintop experience where he has been promised yet again that this will come to be and she is doing the best she can to logically put it together. And so she goes, well, maybe, maybe this is true. I'm going to act in faith. Maybe this is true. Maybe God just desires for us to count that which is right in front of us. How many of you have ever heard the old uh, adage like, Someone's in the middle of the ocean drowning and, and the, the lifeboats come, but they keep, he keeps turning them away. No, 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 I'm waiting for God to save me. I'm waiting for God to save me. I'm waiting for God to save me. He drowns, dies, go to heaven. He says, God, why didn't you save me? He said, I did. I sent a million lifeboats. Okay, this is like the way that we can see that Sarah is interpreting this to be. And so she's like, maybe it's right here in front of us. Maybe this is it. The practice of surrogate motherhood for an inter infertile woman through her maidservant seemed to be an acceptable social practice during this day, Walt here remembers. So she proposes and Abram agrees because, because this is a social practice. It's not just, while it probably is in play here, he's a man, but it's not, it's not just because he's having the opportunity to take another wife. It's that he is excited. He's been promised by God that he's going to have a son. And the promise was that it would come from his own body, but not necessarily Sarah's. So he can reason within himself and he can see, well, maybe this is, maybe this is what God meant. Maybe she's right. So I'll take this surrogate, take him as my own, and we'll move forward. So he agrees. Sarah's action is to give. Hagar's reaction is to get pregnant. And then, as if this is where I, I feel like Abram should have saw this one coming, um, the girls have some issues. You know, I feel like just a little bit of foresight, if you've ever been, had any interaction, specifically significant interaction with a female, you should have seen this one coming, bro. You know, like, like Hagar believes now. She starts to believe that because she can perform that crown jewel of all womanhood and she can have a child that she is now better than Sarai. And so she has struggled that maybe the promise that she's heard about in this family is actually for her because the child will come through her. And so she kind of mistreats Sarai and then Sarai is like, I don't know what to do. So she goes to Abram and, and Abram, again, just in a real manly fashion, steps up and puts his house in order. He goes, I don't know, you deal with her. You know, like he gets super passive. He's like, oh, it's, it's your thing. And then she mistreats her in such a way that Hagar's like, I can't take this anymore. I can't deal with this. I'm going to run back to where I came from. And so I want to I give you our first point today. 
sin begets sin because they don't wait. How many of you have been asked to wait on God before, and that's just hard? How many of you have been promised something by God, but it just didn't happen in the time that you desired? It happened a lot later after the fact. And you, How many of you just wish that God worked on your timetable a little bit? Of course. And they did too. And I, I honestly am trying to give as much grace as I possibly can because I can see where they logically went here. I can see where they went in their reason. But I was just listening. Heather and I uh, were listening to um, this, this small book that C.S. Lewis wrote. Uh, and really, it's not even that he wrote it. Someone found it. He scratched on the back of some like napkins and it was put into a 30 book a uh, 30-minute read. It's a short book about the church. And what he says within it is like is, is so profound. He challenges some things that we often struggle with today. But he says this, the reason this is a struggle is because we are trying to logically or culturally make the church, which belongs to a God who lives outside the bounds of time, logic, and reason, we're trying to functionally make things reason when we serve a God who lives beyond our reason. You see, he was saying that the church shouldn't just function logically because that's the way the world functions. We should work and live in a way that is supernatural. It exceeds the logic and reason of this place. When, when the world around us is hurting or dying or it says it just hasn't happened in my time, they should be able to turn to a church who trusts that God is still God outside of the circumstances or the height of the waves in their life. Amen? That even when you can't circumstantially explain what is going on or how it's going to be, that you trust God is not a liar and God is still God. Too often I believe that we try to make God fit within, um, within our bounds of logic and reason and we say now you can work, now you can operate. But I got to remind us, we are still being graven in his image and his church needs to look a lot more like him than, than we do the world around us. The world only knows to work within its, own, within its own confines of logic and reason. And what I'm saying to you is this. It's not that we become crazy. It's not that we don't discern. But it is that we open our ears. And it is when we go, did I mishear you? Did I second guess you? It doesn't seem to be happening in the time that I would like. And this is seemingly taking longer than I thought. Maybe what you said I misinterpreted. Maybe this is what you meant, the thing that's right in front of me. And God says, look, look, bring all that to me. Cast all your anxieties upon me because I love you. And let me reassure you again. Let me show you that I'm God and that you are my child and that I love you. And I'm not going to withhold from you, but you have to come to me. How many of us have a tendency to go to everyone else before we go to him? It's just not taking time. I mean, maybe I misinterpreted. Maybe I'm like this. And then we go to people in our lives and we say, hey, would this make sense to you? No, it doesn't make any sense to me. And we ask for their logic and reason. And then we find ourselves responding like Sarai and creating Ishmael. Has anybody ever created an Ishmael in here? Just me? Okay, well, you're going to hate this second point then. The second point is that sin begets sin and they begin to interfere. How many of you have ever interfered with what maybe God might be wanting to do? It wasn't that you intended to interfere, but you looked around you and like, like we examined in the pattern before, 
you just logically walked yourself through a series. And you can have compassion for Sarah. You can see this woman is literally just submitting. She's loving her husband. She's following him into the wild unknown. I mean, it's one thing for Abram to walk, but he got to audibly hear from God. He got to encounter that. She is just trusting implicitly, holy, her faith. I mean, she gets a bad rap a lot of time. I think we need to commend her faith. Like it's a major thing. But then when she wants to act out in it, when she wants to act out, she kind of interprets and then interferes. And this is what happens in the sin course. How many of you recognize that, like Abram's response, sin can have a tendency to make us passive. Sin can have a tendency to make us a little lethargic. Sin can have a tendency to make us a little comfortable. Sin can cause us to move from faith to doubt rather quickly. How many of you recognize that we start to neglect our responsibilities when we look at our lives and we allow sin or our logic to step in? I want to say, listen, if, if you've ever lived and found yourself in the height or the darkness of the valley because, because you interfered before God brought it to be, this next point really matters then. Point three, God intervenes. See, Hagar is nothing but an innocent bystander in this entire thing. And, and she, she is a part of the process. But this Egyptian woman who wouldn't know this God and doesn't know this God, I, I love her story. And I, I, I want to go back and read it again. It says that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Anyone ever had this conversation with God? Hey, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? Ever? Just, just me again? Okay, all right. So why are you running? She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And then God gives her a really hard word. Maybe it was... Maybe it's a difficult word, like the woman gave me while I was coming off my high. The one thing I didn't want to hear, the one thing that wanted me to run in another direction. He says, hey, I want you to go back to the one that's hurting you, and I don't want you to submit. How many of you want that call? How many of you want, hey, I want you to go back to the one that's mistreating you, and I want you to submit wholly, and here's what I'll do. I'll bless you for it. I, I, I know he's a jerk. Look, this, this one right here, I think that we can all relate to a little bit. Wives, man, maybe you're, you're being asked to submit to a guy who's just not that holy. Sure, he's not abusive. He's not, he's not physically abusive. Maybe even not a, abusive in an emotional sense, but he's just not the greatest guy. Hey, maybe you're being asked to submit to that boss who's a jerk. You know more than clearly, and he just doesn't know what he's doing, but he is in the authority position right now, and so you are being asked to submit, and every day you have to grind your teeth to do so. Just, okay, just me? All right, so anybody here know what I'm talking? Anyone being asked to wholly trust God when your circumstances don't make sense and the waves seem super, super insurmountable? And you're to wholly trust God when you can't see the outcome right before you. And he says, I want you to stay the course. Do not veer off course. Do not interpret for me. Do not help me. Do not interfere with me. Just let me intervene because I see you. It says she turns and 
even after hearing, I want you to go back and I want you to submit to the one who's hurting you. I will bless you. Your issue will be countless. Hagar, name him Ishmael. He's going to be like a wild donkey, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him. He's not going to have any friends. But here's the thing. I will bless you if you simply submit and so go back. And she finds such comfort, such comfort in the fact that God came after her. How many of you are grateful that God pursues you? Even when you're running, even when you are his foe, he still fought for you, came after you, found you in your running. Maybe, maybe even in this room this morning, he's finding you in your running right now. And it says that she looks at him and says, I want to give you a name. This is like one of the first times we see this happen where, uh, where specifically a person, not only an Egyptian slave woman, gives a name to God. El-Rai, the one who sees me. In Matthew 6, there's this amazing story of how Jesus walks up onto the mountain after feeding the 5,000 and he goes to be alone with the Father for 12 hours and he sends his disciples into the boat. And he sends them into the boat and they, they are in the middle, it's getting dark, they're getting in the middle of the night. It says in the middle of the night, they were blown so far off course, they're in the middle of the lake and they're fighting for their lives. These are skilled fishermen. Peter knows these waters, was called from these waters. And it says that the storm was so high, so big, so insurmountable that they were going to die unless God intervened. When you read in Matthew 6, and I love it, it literally says in, in verse 8, it says that God saw them I'm sorry, verse 648 says, Jesus saw his disciples straining with their oars because the wind was against them. This is no small feat. Let me explain what Jesus is up against. Jesus is peering through the darkest part of the night from six miles. Okay, the the range from where he is placed into the center of the lake is about six miles. Through six miles of darkness, and in a storm so large that skilled fishermen have been blown way off course and they know they're going to die unless he steps in. So in the midst of a hurricane, six miles offshore, as they are fighting for their lives, the word literally says, not like I saw you, like I know where you're at, like I, I, I mentally hurt, I felt that. It says he put his eyes on the sweat of the brow of his disciples. I saw you. Through all these circumstances and through all these obstacles, I saw the very thing that you're straining most against. And the next of that story is he comes walking to them in the fourth watch of the night on the waters. How many of you can relate to Hagar here when she says, I want to celebrate the God who sees me? And through all my circumstance, no matter how high my waves are, sees me and knows what I struggle against, knows the strain that I have with this oar against the wind that is against me. And this is what she's saying, that I am grateful that this God, even though what he said to me is not the most exciting thing to hear, he saw me and came after me when I felt like nobody saw me. Hello? Ever feel like no one sees you? No one knows what you yourself are going through. Like nobody can relate to you and your thing, whatever your thing is. 
She says, the God who has made a promise to other people sees me. And when those people misinterpreted it and they, they got involved and they couldn't wait and they interfered and they brought me in on the process, he was gracious enough in my running to come after me and find me at my largest point of need and through all of my bleak circumstances. He saw me. God is always on time, as we examined last week. I think we need to accept that there's something deeper going on in this story than just that we are in a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship communicates that God sees me through all my circumstances. But we are in covenant with God that says, I will see you, I will never not see you, and I will always be on time, and I will always keep my promises. No matter how much you can't see beyond your own circumstances or that which is right in front of you, I am doing something, and I will continue to do something even if it doesn't feel good. I need you to stop asking why. I need you to start asking, what are you asking me to trust in this? I need you to ask, what are you wanting me to learn through this process? And he may be trying to teach you this one thing. It is the sermon title for today. It is the simplest thing that we can say, the hardest thing to do. And that is this, that God is God. And you can't have his job. I can't take his job. God is God. And here's the thing. I'm okay with that. I mean, it's hard to be okay with that. But in our lives, it's like Isaiah 55 says, that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. Sometimes, hello. Sorry. Sometimes you get to that really cool point and your alarm goes off. How many of you struggle with this part, though? You know, the struggle with the fact that God might be the most self-centered person on the planet. But when your name is I am, you can be. You know? And when, when everyone was created to worship you, it's, a, it's never okay when they begin to worship themselves. Hello? Hello? That it's okay for them to be brought back into a place because they don't understand how you work. And, and it's okay to let them go through things to show them that they need to trust you despite their circumstances. No matter how bleak they are, no matter how harsh they are, that you come through not one time, but every time and always on time to show that you are God and you love them. You see, like God doesn't make sense and we shouldn't ask him to. Hello? Like, why would we, the church who, who believe that, the, that God stepped out of heaven and died for us, taking what we deserved, and he died in our place, why would we believe or ask that God to now start, start acting in a, in, a, in a way that makes sense to us? The gospel doesn't make sense. No one leaves thrones to walk amongst us and then give themselves up. We're all aspiring for thrones. I have a, I want to bring this quote up for you. 
if God's ways didn't make sense for his own son, then why would we argue with him? St. Augustine said it like this. I want you to see it. Man's maker was made that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. The fountain, thirst. The light, sleep. The way, be tired on its journey. The truth might be accursed and accused of false witness. The teacher, beaten with whips. The foundation to be suspended on wood. The strength to grow weak. That the healer might be wounded and that life itself might die. Tell me that that makes sense. But a love so compelling allowed all that to happen so that you and I could be in covenant, not just in relationship, to be in a place where he would never not be with us and never not keep his promises to us. A love that made no sense, that worked outside the bounds of reason, that was unconditional, that didn't ask you to earn it outside your circumstances, sought you out and found you in your deepest place of need, maybe even right now in your time of running, comes to you to say, I love you, you need to remember and you need to trust that I'm sovereign over your circumstances. He's over your best efforts to intervene and maybe, maybe he's sovereign over every time you mess it up. How often do we fall prey to the temptation that we need to help God out? Anyone here still think they need to help God? This is this morning a response in our lives. We need to resist that. He's over your boss that's a jerk. He may be using you in this life of this really difficult person, or he may be using you in the lives who also have to suffer at your boss's hands to offer them encouragement and hope because based on the way you react, we'll encourage them. Because you live, church, outside the bounds of reason and logic. Because you serve a God who lives outside the bounds of reason and logic. You're just asked to walk faithfully and follow faithfully, even when it doesn't make sense like Sarah did, and not encourage and not interpret for him. He's over the waves that in your life right now seem insurmountable, and at your, most, your, your very need, your minute of most strain, he steps in because he overcame the grave, and he still calms those very waves that are in you. And up against me. Hello? This morning I want him to let us find us. He's not going to hand you more than you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. And he's never, listen, Job 1 tells us this. That he's not going to hand you over to anything that he ultimately is in complete control over. God still allowed Satan to tempt Job. He allows, but he's still over. Let him find you this morning. Let's allow him to love us this morning, right here and now. Let's allow God to step in, and I want to ask, how will you respond to him? How are you to leave that thing, whatever your thing is this morning, that has you all concerned, hot and bothered, anxious, that he's not allowing you to run from? Hello? He's not allowing us to just run from that he finds us, he sees us, and he asks us to put it at his altar because he asks for us to cast all our cares upon him because he loves us and we are subject to him. This morning, I don't know what your thing is. I know what my thing is. And I got to tell you, my thing feels huge. I'm sure yours does too. 
but we don't, we don't get rid of our thing and we don't lay our thing at God's feet when we just come into a place like this and we come to a time where God reveals our thing and he says, look, I'm still going to keep my promises and I'm still with you. I won't leave you. And, and, and listen, but we sit here and go, okay, that's great. And we walk out trying to take on our thing by ourselves or with the wisdom of our closest friends. 